welcome to our very first Eshton session. I'm your host Helen and today I'm with Adrienne Phoebe talking about ACLs. This is our first question and answer session and hopefully this will catch a light and we can cover and expand a variety of topics. Adrienne, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and where your interest from ACLs come from? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a band six physio here at Esht. I've been at Conquest for the last two and a bit years. I'm lucky enough to stay on the lower limb pathway, which is my absolute favourite. And during that time, I've been looking after the ACLs. Um, they're my favourite thing to rehab because there's so much to look at. Um, quite fascinated by them and just want to improve the surface as much as I can. So Adrienne, we've had a couple of questions that have come in regarding ACLs and the first one that we should probably start with is I've got a patient that's two weeks post-op, what do I do? So people tend to be really scared of ACLs post-op and I don't really understand why because they're actually really simple um, and you can break it down to some really simple steps. Um, but one thing that I think people tend to forget about possibly because they're overwhelmed by everything else going on is actually how did it happen um, and that can tell you quite a lot. In itself so always find out what the mechanism of injury was find out obviously if there are any complications with surgery whether they had any prehab in the first place and if they did what level were they at do you have any baseline measurements um, did they have full range of motion before hopefully they did um, and also you know what what are they looking to get back to so find out a little bit more about them if they're going back to sport what position do they play if it's a team sport and things like that what level do they play get a bit of an idea of what their fitness was like before and things like that um, with regards to sort of objective markers you want to check their weight bearing how they're weight bearing with crutches um, are they doing that well could they come off crutches I know it's very different site to site over here we're really lucky we can get them off crutches within two weeks and they could be full weight bearing so you're looking at that gait re-education is it better that they stay on the crutches a little bit longer and get a proper good gait um, or can we get them off now um, next you're looking at their range of motion so have they got good range of motion already it's really important that we get that nice knee extension early doors and it's looking at introducing exercises to try and get them there um, try to encourage a little bit more knee flexion extension but also not neglecting the ankle which might have got a little bit stiff particularly if they're limping um, the first phase really in rehab is just to try and calm that knee down so look at the swelling look at the pain um, are they both under control and are they doing things to try and keep that under control? It's little things like ice um, and pain relief. Are they doing that appropriately? And if not, just giving them the advice. Check the wound. Um, make sure there's no problems there. And then also just having a little look at laxity. So I use Lachman's just to check that everything is, is gone as planned. Um, and the knee is nice and stable. Um, quads tend to then be a little bit atrophied. So it's starting to get those quads firing. And you can do that with your inner range quads and all of that is on the protocol that, that you should be dished out. So you show them the protocol for the first two weeks and get them rolling with that. That's perfect. Um, you mentioned earlier about getting knee extension and why, and I'm just wondering why you find that so important. So obviously the sooner that you can get knee extension, the easier it will be. If you leave it later down the line, things get stiffer. Um, but also you need to get those quads firing as soon as possible in order to restore good strength and good function um, which is going to have a massive knock-on effect on their gait and things like that so yeah the sooner that you get knee extension the better you can get the quads firing the stronger they're going to be sooner and the better they're going to restore function 
We have another question here for you. How are you managing any psychological issues following surgery that might also be affected during lockdown? I think that's a really good question and it's something that's really important. Um, for me, I think small realistic goal setting is probably the most essential bit of it, alongside some education regarding the healing process itself. I think the, the more a patient understands about their condition and how long things are going to take and why we're doing things, the better. Um, and they need to understand this is going to be a really long process. And the fact that we've got locked down a global pandemic, the lack of face to face contacts and the way that we're approaching things differently should naturally slow down their progress. Um, during lockdown, I think it's more important than ever to ensure that their exercises are really specific to them. So if they have a sport they want to get back to, get it as sport specific as possible from day one um, and make it as meaningful to them as you possibly can, because yeah, you can still follow the protocol and keep it nice and safe, but you're making it fun and you're making it individualised and that's going to help them sort of stay motivated. Um, and also, you know, appreciate that motivation ebbs and flows normally. You know what it's like to go to the gym. Some days you want to go, some days you don't. And it's exactly the same with rehab. And that's going to be exacerbated even more with lockdown. So just make sure those goals are meaningful, but acknowledge that actually it's okay for them to have some downtime. If they want a week off, have a week off. That sounds very wise advice. So you mentioned um, about it being a long process and how we're trying to promote self-management of these patients and ensuring that it's patient-specific. How are we currently treating patients in regards to self-management? Are there certain protocols or education resources that we can signpost them to? So um, at the moment, due to COVID-19, things are very different. I've been redeployed. So I'm not with my lovely ACLs in the gym anymore. I'm hanging around with a stethoscope around my neck. Um, so currently trying to keep in contact with them as much as possible, but over the phone. Um, it's been really tricky. Um, but what I managed to do was before I got redeployed, I provided some individualised videos to my current caseload before the classes stopped, just so that they've got things to do that's specific to them um, to keep their fitness up as well as their strength and just keep them interested so that we don't lose them. Um, and I've also sort of added different advice and, and different ways to kind of keep them moving, things they can do, maybe things to avoid until I see them next. Yeah. Um, with the newer patients in that kind of in-betweeny stage, I had to get a little bit more creative with telephone calls and sending appropriate YouTube links of things that I thought might suit them. Um, thankfully, there's a project underway at the moment, um, thanks to Penny Nichols, and we've got videos and photos of exercise ideas that are suitable for each stage of the protocol now. Um, or the Eastbourne side of the protocol, but we can tweak it um, to help guide the ACL patients sort of throughout their rehab. And that will be alongside advice and education from, from physios that are currently in the department. Awesome. That sounds cool. So you mentioned about it being really important that we um, provide advice and education, and it can be done in multiple, in multiple ways through like a multimedia approach. Um, how important do you think um, education is for these patients? I think drip feeding education from day one is really important, regardless of whether there's a global pandemic or not. And generally, I try and explain the healing process to them from the beginning. Um, I explain the risks of re-rupture, graft, uh, graft elongation, uh, damage to the harvest site and things like that, just so that they've got a better awareness of, of why we're making them do what we are and, and why we hold them back from certain things. Um, and also, you know, they need to understand what needs to be achieved before returning to sport so that they're more likely to adhere to it. The more they, under, like I said before, the more they understand, the more likely they are to, to sort of play ball. Yeah. 
So what can we do to prevent ACLs injuries in the first place? Um, there's, lots, there's lots of things. Um, so I believe there's a lot of evidence has shown that cross-training is actually really important and, and that helps promote that balanced strength, um, as has things like sufficient pre-season training after the off-season break. Um, I think I understand that a lot of, a lot of injuries tend to happen at pre-season <laughs> at the beginning of the season. Um, for warm-ups, things like the prevention programmes that are out there, such as there's FIFA 11 Plus, there's Netball Australia, there's, there's loads of evidence to show that compliance to those has um, had a massive reduction in sort of the ACL incidents. So I tend to dish that out ahead of discharging and I try and sort of chat up their teams and then see if they can implement them to sort of their general programme. They're really great. They look at the activation, they look at your range of motion, they look at loads of neuromuscular control and landing mechanics that's a little bit more sport specific for things like football, uh, football and netball. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge that actually the majority of ACL injuries are non-contact injuries. So good technique, change direction and pivoting, things like that, that's really important along with that balanced, strong, strong leg. Um, so we know that education is a very good preventative measures for something like an ACL injury. Yes. And by incorporating FIFA 11 Plus and Netball Australia into local sports teams would probably put us up on a good front. Have you noticed that, that there's a certain clientele that come through the door or any sports specific people that come through the door? Um, I would say I've had quite a range, to be honest. Um, lots of football, lots of netball. Uh, hockey, judo, had an influx of judo at one point, American football. So there's been quite a mix. Um, but I think it is important to acknowledge that women are actually affected four times more likely than men of ACL injury. And why do you think that is? Um, there's lots of thoughts around it. It's generally thought to be um, due to biomechanical differences, um, but also there's hormonal fluctuations. Um, you've got to think about sort of what the activities are that they're doing as well. So things like netball, where you've got that, um, reliance on that single leg landing and then they've got that natural more of a, more of a natural valgus movement puts them at a higher risk um, yeah we can't change that unfortunately but we can get them stronger we can get them fitter and um, I think if by promoting good technique with things like Netball Australia and drills you can kind of reduce the risk a little bit so if teams have introduced like FIFA 11 and Netball Australia and things have gone well do you have you had any uh, communication with football teams to find out if they do anything um, to help reduce ACL injuries? Um, not well. I, I know a couple of football teams that have introduced the FIFA 11 Plus now, particularly at the moment they're doing, like, doing it over Zoom, which is great. Um, there are more established football teams that actually introduced a deload week when the players, so women's football team, when the players were at most at risk of an ACL injury. So there's evidence suggests that certain times of the cycle, you're actually at high risk of getting a ligament injury. So what they did is they tracked cycles using apps. Um, and then when they were deemed to be at the most at risk, then they deload them, which is great, but probably not very practical for your average Joe. So, and I also think, you know, by mentioning this too much to your average Joe would raise quite a lot of fear avoidance which is probably going to put them at higher risk than the hormonal fluctuations anyway yeah so you say about hormone fluctuations playing a large part do you can you expand on those hormone fluctuations uh yeah so evidence has shown that during the pre-ovulatory phase of the menstrual cycle so between sort of days 9 to 14 
um, that's when women are at most risk of, of sustaining an ACL injury. I think they found there was like a 74% of ACL injuries of this one cohort were in that stage of their cycle. Um, from what I've found, there's no clear determinant as to, as to what that, why that is, but the hormones have gone from being at their lowest point, sort of in phase one, if you were to break it into four phases. Um, and then, although your progesterone has stayed really low, your estrogen is, really, is starting to rise. And I think that has an influence on, on your neuromuscular control, definitely, um, but potentially also on your tissues. Awesome. So we know that hormones play a part into the functioning of the ACL and it also changes the biomuscular control. As ACLs are protocol driven and it's really easy for us to take a back seat and not take into any of these considerations, is there anything that going forwards at certain points where you're following a protocol that you need to be aware of? Yeah, no, I know what you're saying. So our protocols, it's time-based. And generally our progressions are guided by the weeks post-operatively. Um, and that's in order to respect the normal healing times of the graft and the harvest site, etc., which is essential. But saying that, I think it, yeah, it's really important to acknowledge that everyone does have different influences. Everyone has different uh, neuromotor learning. Everyone has at different levels of their psychological readiness. Um, and obviously things like hormonal factors and gender and previous fitness. So yeah, you, you've definitely got to fulfil a criteria in, alongside those time changes. Um, so I tend to have uh, a, few, a few stages in mind and some criteria to fulfil within those um, when I'm rehabbing, which I would do alongside the, the time. So I'd break it down into four. So you've got your pre-op phase. So pre-op, you want to calm that knee down. You want to make, uh, you want to reduce the swelling and the pain, restore range of motion, and start to build up strength. So you want to try and get like minimum 90, 90% strength symmetry, left and right. Then you're moving into the acute phase again, keeping it nice and quiet. So reducing swelling, reducing pain, continuing to restore that range of motion, remembering that focus on the knee extension, and you're introducing more of the neuromuscular training. Then moving into the intermediate phase is more that introduction of the control work. So you're looking for that 90% um, strength, but you're also looking for the 90% hop test, which we can talk about in a bit more detail. Um, and you're looking at that kind of movement quality. And um, once you've done all that, then you can move into that late phase. So that 90% quad symmetry, hop symmetry, and you're switching. So that's when that control, sorry, that's when that focus will go from an internal focus to an external focus. Um, and then obviously you've got, as we've spoken about before, that ongoing maintenance with, with Neville Knee, um, which can be used as maintenance as well as prevention. But yeah, it, it's really important because the, the patients will start to feel really, really confident around the four month mark, um, which is great. Um, and ordinarily, you know, you'd have hit the range of motion, their strength will be getting a lot better, movement quality is wonderful, and they'll be feeling confident, they'll probably be feeling a bit invincible. But then that's when it's important to go back to the time levels because actually that's when it's the most common time for them to re-rupture because the tissue healing phase transitions from that proliferation phase into the ligamentization phase and that's actually when when the graph's at its weakest so yeah highlighting that fact early doors to the patient is is really important because that's what often where you can lose them within the rehab um so i tend to then ramp up the, the fun side of the rehab and try and keep them engaged so setting them up in, in terms of education and understanding how their ligament changes from the prolif proliferation phase to the ligamentization phase is kind of key to keeping them engaged in their own rehab. 
What, how do you know when to start to move them on to that next level? When do you progress and move forward? It's quite tricky because there's not a lot of solid evidence that actually backs any specific objective criteria to determine sort of how or when you progress into those end stages of rehab. Um, and I think it's also important to acknowledge that all these biological changes that, that make that graft weaker actually continue for up to or, or beyond 12 months as well. So although they're past that weakest point, yeah, you still need to keep them, keep them nice and close and, and keep rehabbing them. So you mentioned earlier about the importance of a hop test um, and aiming for a 90% hop test. What, what does that mean? How do we measure? What, what are we looking for? Tell me all about this hop test. <laughs> hop test has come under scrutiny recently, so it's quite interesting. Um, but what, what, we were, what we tend to look at um, within the trust is a series of four different hops. Um, and what you're looking for is how they're getting that symmetry left and right. So are they getting the same takeoff? Are they getting the same distance um, and are they achieving the same kind of landing quality? And is that landing quality any good or actually are we reproducing that mechanism of injury that, that you get for an ACL injury? So that, that valgus and that trunk sway. Um, so I'm looking for, yeah, so you're looking for that 90% with the distance. So we currently, it may change, we currently look for the single hop for distance, um, which is jumping as far as you can on one leg and landing with good quality. We look at the vertical hop um, so jumping for heights, jumping as high as you can and landing with quality. And um, we do the triple crossover. So you're jumping over a line three times, getting as far as you can. Um, and the lateral hop test, which is my favorite I do, which is jumping over, over a series, over 30 seconds, doing as many hops as you can over 40 centimeters. And with that, that rapid hop over test, are you looking for speed? Are you looking for fatigue? What sort of elements are you looking for? Yes, you, yeah, brilliant question. So you're looking for that kind of symmetry between left and right. Um, obviously, you want it to be within normative values um, so that you know that they are fit enough and strong enough to, to then go forward onto their sport. But, you know, you're looking that they're landing sensibly. They're looking that they're taking off the same way. You're looking that they've got that speed. They've got that control. There's not loads of compensatory movements. Um, in place that you know no cheating so when you see that cheating is that when you're stopping those tests that's a good question uh often if i think it's putting them at risk i think it, yeah it's important to acknowledge that practice makes permanent so yeah if you're going to keep reiterating that movement and possibly you're not going to be doing them any good um it's trying to work out why they're doing it is it a hip strategy are they are their quads not strong enough do we need to take strip it back and get them a little bit stronger um, is it a confidence thing? It's when you can bring in that readiness to sport. Is it something that they're worried about? Are they holding back for that reason? So I think, yeah, it, it very much depends on what they're doing and why they're doing it. So it involves a little bit more digging. Okay. And um, what would you say your discharge criteria is to return to sport? So firstly, I'm quite strict on no sooner than nine months um, post-op, generally, for things like, yeah, your, your pivotal sports. Um, but I think sport dependent, they can often return to their forms of training way before then. Um, currently, within the trust, the plan is that we do 95% symmetry with strengths of quads, hamstrings, your gastroc, your soleus and your adductors, as well as 95% symmetry um, with the series of uh, the battery of hop tests that we just spoke about now. So they'd have completed all of the movements needed for their sport as well. So if it's football, then you're looking at that sudden change direction, some tackling, some contact work. Um, just in order to make sure that they're completely confident.
and making sure that it's not just sport specific that you're looking at, but position specific. So respecting that, you know, different positions in rugby, for example, have completely different demands and making sure that you've you've looked into that and you've individualised. Um, I tend to use the ACL, RSI and the IKDC to measure their psychological readiness for sport. I think it's something that's really commonly underlooked. Um, I actually introduced this a lot earlier to help guide the end stage of my rehab. So I'll look at the bits that they're concerned about, the things they're struggling with, and then I'll tailor exercises and drills and drip feed education and reassurance, reassurance accordingly. Um, you tend to find if, if I've got a late stage rehabber, they guide the, they'll guide guide their hour. So I'll say to them, what are you worried about? If you were to go and play football tomorrow, what's the bit that's at the front of your mind? They might say, sudden change of direction to the left. So we will do an hour of sudden change of direction to the left. So it's just, uh, yeah, making sure that they're ready. Okay. And when you were saying that you're using these ACL, RSI and the IKDC, is that something that we can access readily? Is is it a questionnaire? It is. It is um, a commonly used outcome measure uh, for those who work in the trust. It is on the B drive in the ACL folder. Um, but also currently I'm putting together a discharge pack. So that will incorporate everything that needs to be achieved and ticked off before they can go back to sport. And that will all be in there all in one anyway. Um, but I'll obviously keep it separately on the B drive so that you can keep tapping in and keep rechecking it because it's definitely one to look at regularly throughout the rehab and not just at the end as a tick box exercise. Perfect. So this is where we come away from being protocol led and we come into this making it person specific and rehabbing and moving forward. Yeah, 100 percent. Earlier you mentioned that we needed to achieve a 95% plus symmetry um, in strength of quads, hamstring, gastric, soleus, adductors. How do we go about even measuring those? We, most sites around here don't have the equipment to be able to do that. What's your recommendations? Yeah, so we had to be a bit more creative um, with this one. Ideally, we'd be looking at one rep max and um, using lots of fancy equipment that we don't have. But as we know, sort of yeah, definitely cross-site, we're limited in, in what we can offer and we need to make sure that we can standardise it. So with the discharge pack, um, what we've looked at is looking at working to failure. So we've done body weight exercises to failure um, and that's, you know, it's great because then they can incorporate it into the home exercise plan as well and they can get really familiar with it. Um, so for quads, we do single leg sit to stand, which also incorporates a bit of control, which is fantastic. For hamstrings, we do a uh, bridge I forgot what it was called there sorry a single leg bridge their foot on the chair gastroc we're doing a straight leg uh, calf raise soleus we just do a bent knee calf raise and adductors we do the Copenhagen and yeah so we do them to failure and again we're looking for that symmetry left and right and when you say to failure are we going failure is in they cannot do any more or are we going to the point where they've lost control yeah I'd say lost control okay Perfect. So now that we've been on the ACL journey, and I feel like I've learned quite a lot in this short period of time, is there anything else that you'd like to mention or are you happy with how today's gone? I'm pretty happy. Cool. That's always good. <laughs> so this is the first episode of our ESHT in session and we're hoping to be able to roll this out with multiple joints, multiple pathologies, um, but we'll keep you updated on how that goes. Um, thank you, Adrienne, for your wise words of wisdom on ACLs, your passion. 
Um, and we look forward to making more of these in the future.